please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1. The book of Philippians is a book that I had the opportunity to study over sabbatical. And I want to bring to you a message this morning entitled, Joy in Trials. Joy in Trials. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. The book of Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. Joy is the theme of this great epistle. And if you read through the book, you'll see that this is so. Chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I make, chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, I'm making my prayer with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 25, I will remain for your progress and joy in the faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy. Chapter 2, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says to the Philippians, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This is a book about joy. In this book, we find a man who is rejoicing in his relationship with Jesus Christ. He's rejoicing in the Philippians' faith in Christ. And he's rejoicing in the progress of the gospel because the gospel is moving forward and advancing and bearing fruit in the world. And he is filled with joy. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So this is a book about joy. But what makes this book so powerful is that it is more than a book about joy. It is a book about joy in trials. It is a book about experiencing joy in the most severe and most difficult trials. You see, Paul is writing this book from prison. In chapter 1, verse 13, he mentions my imprisonment. In verse 17, he says again, my imprisonment. Paul has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is guarded by a Roman soldier day and night. He's robbed of his freedom to come and go as he pleases. And as he writes this book, he is unsure if he will live or die. He's awaiting a court date which may result in his execution. And he doesn't know if he'll continue to live. And it is from this severe trial of Paul, this dark imprisonment, which it appears this is going to go on for at least two years if we piece the historical events together. It is from this trial that he writes this book of joy. And so the book of Philippians is not only a book about joy, it is a book about joy that is experienced in the deepest trials. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the question is that when we experience these various trials, when you and I experience these multi-dimensional trials which always seem to come and go in our lives, even when we experience the most severest trial where we feel imprisoned in our circumstances, And there seems to be no way out. The question would be, is there joy? Is there joy to be found in those times of difficulty? And the book of Philippians would answer, yes. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. We believe that Paul is in Rome as he writes this letter. In chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It appears that this is a Roman imprisonment. Many commentators have equated this imprisonment with the imprisonment of Acts chapter 28, which would mean that this is a lengthy imprisonment. Acts 28.30 tells us that Paul was imprisoned for two whole years. Trials come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Some are big and some are small. Some are short and some are long. What Paul's experiencing here is a long, prolonged trial, one that if we were experiencing, we would feel that there is no end and we would be uncertain if it will ever end. And he doesn't know if this will actually end in death. And in the midst of this severe affliction, He writes to the Philippians, and he says to the Philippians, don't worry about me. I am rejoicing. I'm not discouraged. I'm not depressed. I haven't grown cynical. My heart is filled with joy. And not only does he write the Philippians to say, I am rejoicing, but he calls on the Philippians to join with him in rejoicing. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I remember visiting an older saint who was afflicted with leukemia and visiting him in the hospital. And he was undergoing chemotherapy and his hair had fallen out. And I went to encourage him. And I found there on the hospital bed a man that was filled with joy. And I came away with him encouraging me to rejoice and to not let the trials of life get me down. And see, that was Paul. His heart was saying, I am in prison, but I'm calling on you to be encouraged. Don't feel sorry for me. I want you to rejoice. As I looked at this book, I felt like my own heart needed to hear this message, and that's why I studied it over sabbatical. And I think we all need to hear the message of this book, don't you? We all face what James calls various trials. I know you face various trials in your life. I know that we as a church collectively face trials. And we all need to learn this attitude of joy. Joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know that the book of Philippians is not only a book about joy, it is also a book about the gospel. It is a book about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this book, the word joy is used 16 times, and the word gospel is used eight times. And by the way, the name Christ is used 50 times in this book, which just tells you what the book is all about. It is all about 
Christ. The joy that we are experiencing is a joy in Christ. The gospel is a gospel of Jesus Christ. But focus on the word gospel for a moment because it just appears throughout the book. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel. Verse 7, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 22, Timothy has served with me in the gospel. This is not only a book about joy, it is a book about the gospel. The word gospel is the Greek term evangelion. It is from where we get the word evangelical. And the word evangelion means good news. The gospel is the good news. It is the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news concerning the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save guilty sinners like you and me. That through his death and resurrection that we have been forgiven of our sins and we have eternal life. That we can be justified and adopted as children of God. This is the good news. And the joy that Paul experienced was not a joy that was disconnected from theology or disconnected from doctrine. It was a joy that was rooted and grounded in the good news, the evangelion, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's because the gospel was central in Paul's heart and in his life that he was able to rejoice in the darkest of circumstances. Because the joy that he experienced was a fruit of the gospel working in his heart. Joy is at the center of this book. But the joy was connected to his understanding of the gospel. And if I could summarize Paul's attitude, it would be in this. Paul cared more about the gospel than he did about anything else in his life. Paul cared more about the gospel than he did about anything else in his life. That's why he rejoiced. You know, if you read through this book, you just get the sense that Paul just says, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter if I'm in prison it doesn't matter if I'm free. It doesn't matter if people respect me. It doesn't matter if people criticize me. It doesn't matter if I can have the freedom to come and go or if I'm incarcerated here. It doesn't matter if I live. It doesn't matter if I die. All that matters to me is that the gospel go forward. That's it. That's all I care about is the gospel. And I'm here in prison and I'm being afflicted and people are criticizing me in the church, and I don't know if I will live or die, but it doesn't matter. I'm rejoicing, because you know what? All of this has turned out for the progress of the gospel, and the gospel is moving forward, and that's all I care about, is the gospel. Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his attitude. It doesn't matter what happens to Paul. All I care about is what happens to the gospel. And the gospel is unstoppable. And it's advancing. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Guess what happened? They put me in prison. They put me chained to a Roman guard. And because of that circumstance, the gospel has been witnessed to the Roman guard. And the whole praetorian guard, the whole military unit of Rome has heard the gospel. 
Don't feel sorry for me. God put me here to testify to the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul mentions rival preachers of Christ, fellow ministers who are seeking to criticize him and to cause him distress. And he says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, sure, they're preaching Christ to criticize me. They're preaching Christ with wrong motives. They're preaching Christ to try to bring down my name, but I don't care. They're preaching Christ. That's all I care about. Christ is proclaimed. What you find in Philippians is a man who doesn't care about his personal comfort. He doesn't care about his personal circumstances. He doesn't care if he's in jail or out of jail. He doesn't care if he's being respected or disrespected. All this man cares about is the gospel. The gospel is winning, and so I rejoice. And man, if you have that attitude in your life, you can rejoice. You can rejoice in any trial. May God grant us to have some of that heart and experience the joy that Paul experienced. Let's begin our study in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You'll note here that Paul mentions Timothy. Timothy is not the co-author of this letter. He's a companion to Paul. But warmly, Paul brings him into the greeting because he wants to commend Timothy's ministry to the Philippians. And he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul uses the Greek word doulos to describe himself and Timothy. It's a beautiful word. It is a word repeated throughout the New Testament. Sometimes doulos is translated as Servant, other times is translated as bond slave. I think the most simplest and literal translation of this word is the word slave. The text could read Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Just pause at this point to note the humility of Paul. He was a humble man. I mean, he could have opened this letter and saying, Paul and Timothy, the great evangelists of the New Testament church. Paul, do you remember me, the author of 13 New Testament epistles, which will be international bestsellers, the brilliant theologian without peer in the church. He could have even said, Paul, remember me? the founding pastor of the church at Philippi. There's always the temptation for spiritual leaders to exalt themselves over the flock, to exalt themselves using titles and position. But Paul here humbly says, Paul and Timothy, slaves, slaves of Christ. And I think this is really how Paul viewed himself. He was just a slave. At the end of the day, he wasn't anything special. He wasn't a religious celebrity. He didn't see himself as a spiritual giant. He didn't see himself as a man of importance in the church. And the guy was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was great servant of God. He was the author of scripture and yet he says, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm just a slave. That's all. None of those things got to his head or puffed up his spirit. His attitude was that of Luke 17.10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
And that was Paul. Don't call me doctor, apostle, or theologian. Just call me a slave. I'm just a fellow slave of Christ. And he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul looked at himself and he saw a slave. He looked at the church and he saw the saints. He looked at the church and he saw the hagioi in the Greek, the separated ones is what the word means. A Christian is a separated one. A Christian is one who, by the grace of God, has been separated from the world. We have been separated from sin. We have been separated from our old lives. We have been separated and consecrated into relationship with Jesus Christ to become Christ's unique possession. We are his beloved. We are his followers. We are his disciples. We are his sheep. And Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, with all humility, humbly he refers to himself as a slave and then with great respect, he addresses the church as the saints. You are all the saints in Christ Jesus. In the Roman Catholic Church, sainthood is reserved for special Christians, for special, super spiritual people who have attained to some level of good works. And Paul says here that all Christians are saints. We are all separated by the grace of God to belong to Jesus Christ. And I think in these few verses, we can build a, a whole theology of spiritual leadership. This is the view of a true spiritual leader. He looks at himself and he sees a slave. Nothing special, nothing big, nothing important. Just a servant who has done what he has been called to do. And he looks at the church and he sees the saints. The unique, precious possession of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and would you notice he adds, with the overseers and deacons. You know, there's two extremes you can go to in the church. The first is that you can exalt spiritual leaders to the point where they become religious celebrities. And Paul says, don't view me in that way because I'm just a slave. But you can go to the, all, all the way to the other extreme. And say, well, because we're all saints and we're all equal, there's no place for true ordained spiritual leaders in the church. And we don't need to respect the leaders of the church because, hey, we're all equal. And Paul immediately adds to, to guard against that with the overseers and deacons in verse 1. Yes, you're all saints, but among the saints there are ordained overseers, elders, and there are deacons. And he guards against those extremes and giving us this balance. We are all saints, and yet among the saints, there are those who have been ordained, set apart to be overseers, elders, and deacons. Verse 1, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Let me say a little something about the church at Philippi. Paul loved this church. He loved these people. They were precious to his heart. If you read through this book, you just get the sense that they were knit together in his spirit. He lived and died with these people. And you know he loved all the churches. I mean... He loved the church at Thessalonica. He loved the church at Rome. He even loved the church at Corinth with all their problems. He loved all the churches, but it seems that there really was a special place in Paul's heart for the church at Philippi, where he basically says in verses 3 and 4, every time I think of you, I'm filled with joy. 
Every time I remember you, I am giving thanks to God. Paul had founded the Philippian church approximately 12 years prior to the writing of this letter. The church was founded in approximately 51 AD, and it is about 63 AD when he writes the letter of of Philippians. So the Philippian church is about as old as our church. They're about 12, 13 years old. They've developed to the point where they have elders and deacons. Old enough to be an established church. And if you read the story of the founding of the church in Acts chapter 16, it is a story that begins with joy. Paul is directed to the city of Philippi through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He finds a woman named Lydia and he preaches the gospel to her and Acts 16.31 says, The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God sovereignly regenerated Lydia's heart, brought her heart to exercise faith in the gospel. Lydia was saved. Her whole household was saved and they were baptized. From there in Philippi, Paul went on to minister to a girl who had been demon-possessed. The girl had made money for her owners through fortune-telling. Paul cast out the demon from this girl. The girl's owners became angry because they saw that their prophet was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. There Paul and Silas were beaten with rods. They were thrown in prison. Their feet were fastened with stocks. And in a most painful trial, with their bodies bruised and bleeding from the beating, midnight comes and Paul and Silas are found praying and singing hymns to God. Nothing will shake these men and their joy. God sends an earthquake to shake the foundation of the prison. The doors are open. The jailer falls down before Paul and Silas. He says in Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas proclaim to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. The jailer believes Christ and all of his household believes as well. They are all baptized. And this is the beginning of the Philippians church. It was a church that was founded in a spirit of joy. It was a church that was founded in a spirit of a joy that the world cannot take away, that trials cannot take away, that suffering cannot take away. The spirit that founded the church is the same spirit that Paul calls them to again in this letter. Through the years, the Philippians have followed Paul's ministry. They have given financially to support his preaching. Now, 12, 13 years later, they hear that Paul's in prison in Rome. They send a servant named Epaphroditus to go and encourage Paul. Epaphroditus finds Paul in prison. He brings to Paul not only word of the Philippians' love and care for him, but also a financial gift to meet his needs. Chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church with this letter. And at the most basic level, level, this is a thank you note. It's a thank you note from a missionary who's been proclaiming Christ for the financial gifts that he's received. But it is also a letter of spiritual encouragement. Paul wants the Philippians to know that he is rejoicing. He wants them to know that these trials have not defeated his spirit. He wants to encourage their hearts to rejoice in Christ. And so he greets them in verse 2 and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a great greeting, by the way, and don't miss it. Don't gloss over it. I was in a class with um, Dr. George Knight III, who taught on the pastoral epistles. And in this class, he spent an entire hour just on this one verse because he said there was so much to unpack here. It's, this is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the message of Jesus Christ contained in a greeting. And I won't spend an entire hour on this verse, but I do want you to not miss the beauty of this greeting. Paul says, grace to you. Grace to you. That's charis in the Greek. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is the unmerited favor of God toward guilty sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Grace is favor that is not earned. It is favor that is not deserved. It is the opposite of pay. It is the opposite of working for it. It is the opposite of merit. Grace is receiving not only what you do not deserve, but the opposite of what you have deserved. You and I deserve hell, God's wrath, God's judgment because of our sins. But the gospel message is grace to you. Grace not only as an abstract theological concept, but grace to you. Grace to me. Through the cross and Christ's atonement on the cross, unmerited favor flows to guilty sinners who receive this grace by faith alone and the work of Christ alone. And Paul says grace to you, and it's his way of saying, I want you to know God's blessing. I want you to experience God's best. I want you to experience the fullness of all that the gospel has for you today. It's a warm and tender greeting from the heart of a man who loves them so. And then he says, peace, peace to you. In the Old Testament, the Jews would greet each other with the word shalom. And the word shalom meant peace. Shalom signified the wholeness of life that came from fellowship with God. And Paul does a New Testament take on this word and he says, peace to you. Peace to you. The gospel is a message of objective peace. It is a message that tells us that we have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ on our behalf. But the gospel is also a message of subjective peace. Because of the objective peace that we have experienced with God through Christ's work, we experience the subjective peace in our hearts that comes from this objective peace. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, peace to you. He's saying, may you experience the fullness of your relationship with Christ. May you experience the fullness of the joy of this reconciled relationship that we have with God. May you experience the fullness of the blessing, the wholeness of life that comes from having all the enmity with a holy God removed and satisfied through the work of Christ. And may you experience peace not only as a concept or as an idea, but peace to you, peace in the here and now. May the blessings of the gospel flow from the cross into your lives here today. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the gospel comes from. It's from the Father. The grace and peace that is in the gospel comes from our 
Father. It is the Father's love who has, that has initiated this grace and peace. It is the Father who sovereignly determined the plan of redemption to send his own son as a sacrifice for our sins. It was the Father's good will to crush his own son in our place at the cross and to pour his holy wrath on his son on our behalf. It was the Father's sovereign determination before the foundation of the world to choose us, to sovereignly select the saints of God out of the mass of humanity of everyone who has ever lived, to be God's unique possession, to be his children, to be the ones who uniquely belong to him. It was the Father's plan that the glories of justification be unveiled before the world. The glories of double imputation, our sins nailed to the cross with Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to our, to our behalf by grace through faith. This was the Father. It was the Father who determined the plan of salvation. And Paul says this grace and peace comes from God our Father and we have the right to call him our Father because of the grace and peace that we have experienced in the gospel. And then would you note he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace comes from the Father who loves us, the Father who planned the plan of redemption, the Father who determined to save us in time, and it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ who, who executed God's plan of redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ who was the willing Lamb of God, who submitted to the Father's will and said, not my will, but your will be done. Who came into this world and like a lamb led to slaughter, did not argue, did not fight back, but who humbled himself as a servant, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was the son who expressed his, his love for the father by executing the father's plan of redemption. It was the son who demonstrated his love for us and standing in our place at the cross of Calvary. Grace and peace to you, to you. This grace comes from the Father. This grace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said before, the, the name Christ repeats, repeatedly occurs in the book of Philippians 50 times. This whole book will be a book about Jesus Christ and his work and his gospel, his grace, his peace. If you miss Christ in this book, you have missed the point of the book. It is because of Christ that we experience God's grace and God's peace. What a gracious heart Paul had for the church. What a humble heart he had. What a respectful heart he had. What a heart of love he had. And what a gospel-saturated heart he had that this was his greeting. The early Christians had two greetings that were common. The first was the greeting to rejoice. Instead of saying, hey, or how's it going, or what's going on, they would say, rejoice. And that's how they would greet each other because it was so appropriate. Rejoice because of the grace and peace we have experienced. And, and the second greeting they would say is grace and peace to you. And I would just suggest to us that this ought to be our greeting toward one another. If you ever feel awkward in writing an email to a brother, just I give you permission to begin your email with grace to you, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, what should I post on Facebook? I just don't, when it asks me, I don't know what to say. What's on your mind? Nothing's on my mind. Here's something you can put. Grace and peace to you because it's a way of us preaching the gospel to one another. 
and reminding each other of the grace that is found from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a reminder of the Father's love. It is a reminder of the Son's work. And though Paul does not include it here, the Holy Spirit is involved in applying the work of redemption and bringing this grace and peace to our hearts. May this be the, our heart greeting toward one another in the church. May our heart greeting be toward any brother or sister in Christ. Like Paul, I want you to experience grace and peace. Verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in my every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And I would just want to note this one truth in verse 3. This is an absolutely stunning opening of a letter from a man who was found in prison. It is stunning. What would your first words be if you were in prison? What would your first words be if you're on death row? How would you greet the church? I can think of at least 12 sinful ways that Paul could have began this letter. 12 ways to draw attention to his own sorry predicament. 12 ways to throw a pity party. 12 ways to be selfish. 12 ways to complain and be critical and be discouraging. 12 ways to complain. Is this what I get for being a faithful servant to Christ? This is what I get for all these years of serving Christ is imprisonment. And yet he begins by saying, I'm thankful. I thank my God every time I remember you. And he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He says, I'm always praying for you. And every time I'm praying for you, I'm remembering the grace that we've received in the gospel and I'm rejoicing and I'm thanking God. It's a stunning opening to a powerful epistle. Paul was constantly giving thanks. Colossians 1.3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. In 1 Thessalonians 1.2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Even to the Corinthian church, Paul said, I give thanks to my God always for you. Let me be real, just be real practical as we close our time. Let me give you a practical key to experiencing gospel joy. If you're saying this morning, I see what Paul experienced, Dan, how do I cultivate this kind of joy in my life? If you want to experience joy in trials, joy in Christ, joy that overflows and encourages others, let me just encourage you this morning to cultivate a life of thankful prayer. Cultivate a life of thankful prayer. In light of the cross, in light of Christ's work, in light of all the grace and peace that we have experienced from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, let us pray. Let us pray. And as we pray, let us give thanks. First Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let me just suggest to you that thankful prayer as a way of life Prayer that is flavored with a spirit of gratitude is a means of grace. God uses this 
this grace-motivated discipline in our lives to melt our hearts and to fill our hearts with joy. Let me just encourage you that it is difficult to stay critical when you're constantly giving thanks. It's difficult to remain discouraged when you're constantly giving thanks. It is difficult to stay negative when you're constantly praying to God and you're constantly giving thanks. I would encourage you that it's hard to get discouraged when you're constantly lifting up others before the throne of grace and you're just remembering specifically. Not, and I just encourage you to, to, be, to be intentional in this, not just give general thanksgivings. Well, thank you, God, for the church, and thank you, God, for the world, and thank you, God, for all Christians at Cornerstone. But to be specific and to name Christians by name and to identify evidences of grace in their lives, ways that you see God working in their lives, ways that they have ministered to you or you see them ministering to the church, ways that you see them growing in godliness, and specifically give thanks to God for those things. And as you cultivate this life of grateful prayer, God will pour his grace into your life because he will use that means of grace to melt your heart. And you will find yourself that he is filling your heart with joy. I think of my my own heart in just thinking about the church and, and my heart is, Lord, I... I want to be more specific and, and intentional in how I give thanks for other Christians. I, just, I don't want to just say, well, Lord, thank you for the marrieds and thank you for the kids and thank you for the singles, but, but I want to name Christians by name in prayer and just say, Lord, I want, to, I want to thank you for this dear brother who serves in setup team every week and he gets up two hours earlier than the rest of us and nobody sees and nobody knows what he does to serve the church but you know and I just want you to know that I'm so thankful Lord I'm just thankful for this brother and how he serves the church or I want to just pray for specific uh, specific moms who are I know they're not sleeping and I know that they're just dragging themselves into church and they're barely awake they've been up the night before and just say Lord thank you for this mom who's bringing her three or four kids to church and dragging herself here and yet she sits under the teaching of the word of God and gives her best attention even though I know she's so tempted to fall asleep because she didn't sleep last night thank you Lord just thank you for the the men who serve on security team and who guard our who guard our cars from getting broken into and who sacrifice their time in this way or thank you for those who have labored and who have given sacrificially for the Czech missions team to go forward so that these dear brothers and sisters can go and herald the gospel. And I'm just seeing that my prayer life is not specific enough and that when I am able to give thanks to God in prayer, God has a way of filling my heart with joy because I begin to see grace everywhere in the church. I begin to see God's hand everywhere in so many different people's lives and so many different servants and so many different members. And though my heart's inclination is to become critical and to become discouraged and to become pessimistic, God uses this means of grace to fill my heart with joy. As Christians, we have so many reasons to be thankful. And if we cannot and have a hard time identifying evidences of grace in our lives, let us just begin with our salvation. Let us just begin by thanking God for what he has done for us and saving us from our sin. And not only thanking God for our salvation, but for the salvation of others in the church so that every time we remember them, we are filled with joy. I exhort you, I encourage you to cultivate a life of grateful prayer. Saturate other brothers and sisters in Christ with thankful intercession and see if God does not fill your heart with joy. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in my every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. 
Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote these lyrics. He said, What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy could stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. This is the joy that belongs to us as Christians. It is a joy in the gospel. It is joy in suffering. It is joy in trials. It is joy in Christ. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Would you stand together with us and let's close our service in prayer. As we close our service, we want to remind you that in shortly after the elders will be having a sharing and a family time, we want to encourage you, there will be no snacks until after uh, family time is over. Uh, please pick up your children and come right back here and we'll be getting uh, promptly. Uh, let's close our time in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we as Christians have every reason to rejoice. We have received your grace and we have received your peace. This has all come from you, our gracious Father, and has all come through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We give thanks. And we pray that you would give us the heart of Paul, who cared more about the gospel than anything else in his life, who did not care if he lived or died, if he was freed or imprisoned, if he was criticized or respected, that all he cared about was that the gospel was proclaimed. And because that was his heart, he rejoiced. Father, help us to have this heart. Help us even this week to cultivate a life of grateful prayer for other Christians, that you would melt our stony hearts through this means of grace and give us hearts of joy. We thank you for this time in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.